0: Good morning church. Please turn with me or tap with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges. That's where we're gonna be for the next 12 weeks or so. It'll be toward the beginning of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. If you get to the first and second, you've gone too far. So right towards the beginning of your Bibles, book of Judges. Really excited uh, for us to study that. Uh, before we jump in, just want to add my congratulations to the seniors. So are y'all like done? Like finals are done and done, done. Oh man, is that not the best feeling or what? When that last final is finished? That is amazing. So happy for you guys. There's a reason that uh, like all of my recurring memories are like Back to finals week in high school, so that's just, maybe that's just, my recurring nightmares, excuse me, I said memories, my recurring nightmares all go back to finals week in high school and college, so um, happy for you guys to be done with that, and super happy uh, just to see what the Lord does in your lives, and uh, in you, and through you, as you continue to grow in your love for Him. All right, we're going to be in Judges this morning, we got a lot of ground to cover, so please bow your heads with me, and we'll pray, and then we will dive right into the text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are good. What kind of God would call us to cling to a cross and exchange it for a crown? Only you can come up with that, God. You are so high above all of our thoughts. Who has known the mind of the Lord? We praise you, God, for including us in your story, for loving us enough to send your son to die for us, that we can cling to the old rugged cross, and that's all we can cling to, no righteousness of our own, just the cross, God. We thank you, we thank you for the promise that we will exchange it for a crown. Lord, I pray for these seniors, uh, that you would continue to reveal yourself to them in greater and greater ways. Discipleship is hard, God. There's cost. There's a cost to it. I know for these seniors, they've felt that cost keenly already, and they will continue to do that. So, Lord, we just pray that even in the cost, that they would know it's worth it. That all of us would know it's worth it, God, to follow you, even when it's hard. We want to be your disciples. So, Lord, I pray that as we study the book of Judges together, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in us, in our hearts as we see these things in your word, God, that we would apply it in our lives, that we'd be changed, that we'd be transformed. Only you can do that through your word, God. We thank you for that. We love you. We praise you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, we're uh, kicking off a series in Judges starting this week. And we're going to be going, Lord willing, for the next 12 weeks or so, get, make it all the way through the book. So we'll be going at a pretty accelerated pace. But I usually like to go, at least I try to go uh, alternate New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament. So we started in, uh, or we just finished First Peter, so now we're jumping into the Old Testament, the book of Judges. And kind of several months ago, as I was looking forward to what was going to come next, I was asking around, asking some people, hey, what Old Testament book you think we can, should study? And I was kind of thinking, and then some other people said, Yeah, maybe Judges would be a good one. And so uh, I was kind of refamiliarizing myself with it. And I came across this article. There's a website, uh, ninemarks.org, and they have the, all these articles X reasons why you should preach through Y books. So it tells you five reasons you should preach through Acts or whatever. So this was four reasons you should preach through Judges. And the very first line of the article said, uh, Judges is the worst book in the Old Testament which uh, didn't really do much to sell me on why I should preach it, but as I read through the rest of the article, it's like, you know what, That's, there's some truth to that. And as I've kind of refamiliarized myself with the book of Judges, you start to realize, like, there is some crazy stuff in this book. And there is some horrific stuff in this book, honestly, especially when we get to the end. And so why, if it is in many ways the worst book in the Old Testament, why are we choosing to study it? That might be the question you have. In some ways, that's a question I have in my mind. But there's a couple reasons that we are choosing to study Judges, and I think we're going to gain so much in our study of Judges. But the first reason, uh, I'm going to, a lot of you know this already, my, I'm going to need some help here from my warriors. Where are my every man a warrior, guys? Because there's a verse in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and I'm going to need you guys who have memorized it to quote it loudly so the whole church can hear it right now. So here we go. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. I'm looking at you guys. Here we go. All so that the man God may be Fantastic. That was amazing. Yeah, good job, everybody. We were saying it maybe at different times, but we all got it. That was uh, awesome. All Scripture is God-breathed. What Scripture is Paul talking about when he wrote this? Well, the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been canonized when he wrote this. He's talking about the Old Testament. He says all Scripture, all of it is God-breathed. All of it is useful for correcting, rebuking, training, and righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped Every good work. So, we're studying the book of Judges so that we can be the men and women of God thoroughly equipped for every good work. What we're going to see as we study the book of Judges, even as we just see like its earthiness and its rawness and its realness, like we're going to see the message is super relevant to us. Today, So I'm going to ask you just to do me a favor here over these next 12 weeks when we're together is uh, just to like be willing to dive in fully like 100% like commit yourself to when you walk through these doors like I'm going to put my mind in the 13th century BC like I'm going to go there because if we don't like all go there together we're going to miss a lot of what God's word has to say so can can you commit to that for me can you say I'm going to dive in 100% I'm going to go for it can you commit to that? okay we have mostly non-committal people here a couple can you commit to that for me all right very good Love it. So as we begin this morning, what we're first going to do is just kind of do a little bit of a 50,000-foot like a view of Judges before we dive in to chapter 1. So first we need to look at some of the themes that we're going to see, because we're going to see some certain things crop up, themes crop up as we study the book of Judges, and like I said, these are really good, super relevant to our lives today. So when we were studying 1 Peter, you remember there was one word that I wanted you to remember as we studied it, when you think about the book of 1 Peter, it immediately should come to your mind is the word exile right well there's a word that I want to immediately come to your mind when we study the book of judges in fact if you want to write this on like page one of the book of judges like that would be great but I would really want you to remember this word cycle cycle the book of judges is a cycle this is the pattern and this is a subtitle of our whole series that we're going to see over and over again rebel repent repeat that's what we're going to see we're going to see israel rebel and then they'll repent once they start to feel a little bit of the consequences of their rebellion and then once they stop feeling those consequences they're going to dive right back into rebellion and repeat this cycle over and over and over again now when emily was teaching uh kids sunday school at our old church one time she was i don't know how old were these kids sweetie four years old, and she was teaching the uh, cycle of, of the book of Judges and of Israel, specifically when we see in the Old Testament, and she was telling them that Israel obeyed God, and then they disobeyed God, and God punished them for it, and then they obeyed again, and then they disobeyed again, and God punished them for it, and then they obeyed again, and then they disobeyed again, and one little boy, Ethan, just like so exasperated, just threw his hands on his head and said, why do they keep doing that (laughs) i love that we're going to feel that same way as we study the book of judges why do they keep doing that and when we think about it church man how true is that cycle of obedience in our own lives and maybe this is just me maybe i'm just preaching to myself but how easy is it? You know when we're when we are going through walking through trial and difficulty, it is easy in some ways to throw ourselves on the Lord and be like, Lord, like deliver me from this. Like I need you. And then what happens when he does and he shows you his faithfulness and does deliver you and things are going pretty well. What's so easy to happen as you kind of get into that just easiness of life, right? Just so easy to start to wander away from the Lord again. So as much as we see Israel disobeying time and time again, and we say, why do they keep doing that? We're going to see the same thing in our own hearts, and our own life. Lord, why do I keep doing that Prone to wander, right, from the old hymn. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. That's what we need. We need God to seal our hearts because we are, as his people, prone to wander. And so we're going to get real frustrated with Israel when we study judges. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse each week. And as we see that cycle of rebellion and repentance, hopefully that will cause our hearts to avoid that same cycle in many ways. So That's the first theme we see, the cycle of rebellion, repentance, and then repeating that pattern. Here's the second theme, and it really goes right along with the first. God's people fail, and God is gracious still. God's people fail, yet God is gracious still. We're going to see Israel mess up so many times in so many egregious ways that our natural response is going to be like, God, why didn't you just give up on them? Like, this is really, really bad. God, why didn't you, like, if I were God, I would have given up on Israel a long time ago. Maybe I would have started up with a whole new family, a whole new people. But God does not give up on his people. God's people fail time and time again, they do, and yet God's is gracious still. Is it possible to see the end of the grace of God? It is not. God's grace never runs out and praise the Lord for that. Now, that doesn't mean we don't suffer consequences for our sin, right? That doesn't mean that Israel didn't suffer consequences for their sin. They suffered big time consequences, but God didn't give up on them. We need to see that. And that might be true of you. Like you might have seen that in your own life like like you might have just made a big mess of your life and you might be seeing the consequences for it. Like right now you might be in the middle of that. I don't know. I hope not, but that may be true of you and you might feel the consequences of your sin. And even though that is true, God is still gracious. God's grace never runs out. God never gives up on his people. Praise the Lord for that. Amen? Amen. God's people fail, but God is gracious still. Finally, this is the last theme we're going to see in Judges, is that there's only one true Savior there's only one true savior. Now I should probably explain on the front end why it's called the book of judges because you might if we think about like our idea of a courtroom and a judge and the robe and the gavel and somebody who like adjudicates cases we're going to read the whole book and be like where were all the judges? Like, there's not judges like that. And I'll spare you the long and boring explanation, but, but the, when we see the word judges, what we see is just leader. Like, that's just what it means. It's just leaders. So this group, this book is talking about different leaders of Israel throughout this time. Like we saw in. Uh, before. Every time Israel gets in trouble, this is what we're going to see. Israel's going to get in big time trouble, and when that happens, the Lord is going to raise up a judge to deliver them out of that specific trouble. Now these leaders, some are good, some are bad, some are really, really bad, and yet every single one of them is fallible, and not a single one of them is able to save them. What we see is the deficiency of human leaders. Israel needed a savior, and not a single one of these leaders was going to be able to do it. There's only one true savior, and we know his name, his name is Jesus. Now how much of a tendency do we have as people to look to other human beings to save us, right? like I think that's just like a natural inclination in us. I mean, what's a presidential election other than one side saying this, this person is the savior and that person is gonna bring us all to ruin and vice versa depending on which side you're on, right? It's our natural human inclination to look to other people to save us. It's not just only true in uh, politics. Oh, it's true in the church. It's true in the workplace. It can be true in marriage sometimes. We have a tendency to place the burden of salvation on other human beings rather than on the only one who can truly save. Because man will always fail you, yes, but God will not And Jesus is the only true Savior. So what we're going to see, we're going to get so frustrated with some of these judges. And what that should drive us to every single time is the awesome reminder that no matter who is in charge in a human sense, God is on the throne in reality. And he is the only Savior. Only Jesus can save those are the themes that we're going to see in Judges, and that's like, we say, like I said, as we go through this book, we're just going to see how incredibly relevant it is to our lives. All right. Before we get into chapter 1, we also need to take a, a little bit of time to look at the background of Judges about what led us up to where we're at right here in Judges chapter 1, and I'm going to say something right now that's probably going to risk Pastor Craig never talking to me again. And here it is. I'm just going to say it. I've never been a huge Lord of the Rings fan, okay? I said it. It's out there. Anyone going to, like, really struggle to look me in the eye after this because I've admitted that? Anybody? You can raise your hand if that's true of you. Um, David. Oh, boy. I got half the pastoral staff (laughs) against me. I'm sorry. And I'll admit... That it is my own fault, okay? This is my own fault because I've only caught parts of this whole Lord of the Rings thing and, like, completely out of order. So I watched, the first thing I saw was, like, the first half of the second movie. And then I saw, like, a play of The Hobbit in college. And then I saw the entire third movie and didn't have any idea what was going on the whole time. I never saw the first one. So I think, like, I think it boils down to there's a ring and, like, a volcano Something about like multiple breakfasts. Am I kind of close here? And there's maybe a magic wardrobe. I don't remember if that's true or not, but hey, that's, that's uh, Lord, uh, Narnia, that's something different. So here you can kind of see where I'm going with this. If you don't understand the backstory, like I was just totally jumping in like completely out of order and I didn't understand anything what was going on. And that's true in our Bibles as well. Like if you don't understand the, like where you're at in the story of Scripture, you're going to miss like 90% of what's going on. So we could certainly just study the book of Judges like in a vacuum and look at the stories and think, wow, those, that's really interesting stories. But if we don't understand what's happening in the history of Israel, we're going to miss it. The Bible is a story. I don't know if you know that. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's telling one overarching story. And the, the main character of that story in every instance is Jesus But the Bible's telling a story. And so as we jump in, we're not starting at the beginning. We're starting kind of towards the middle. So as we jump into the book of Judges, we need to understand what has happened to get us to the place where we're at. So we're going to pick it up. We're going to start with Abraham. The first thing we need to remember is that Israel... The nation that we're talking about in the book of Judges, Israel, wasn't even a people, wasn't even a nation, until God made them a nation, and he did it in a way that only God can do, right? He took this old guy, this old lady, Abraham, Sarah, and they didn't have any kids, and weren't able to have any kids, and he said, Abraham, you are going to be a great nation, and your people are going to, your descendants are going to outnumber the stars. And Abraham said, okay, sure, and Sarah laughed, right? Like, this was very unlikely, but God did it, because he's God, and he can do whatever he wants to do. And so God, to displaying his power, makes a people out of somebody who was not a people. They had no descendants, and Israel became a great nation. Abraham had Isaac, who had Jacob right, and then Jacob had 12 sons, you know, the musical Jacob, Jacob and sons, I don't know what I'm talking about, the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, and so those sons are the tribes of Israel, then become a great nation, so the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, ends with the story of Joseph in Egypt, Joseph, one of Abraham's descendants, is now a key leader in Egypt, God's people are going to Egypt. So then what happens? Well, they become more and more numerous, more and more powerful, just like God said they would. And so the Egyptians kind of freak out a little bit, and they say, these people are getting too powerful. We need to put them to slavery and so, Egypt, so Israel was now enslaved in Egypt. We all know the story, and then the story of Moses and Pharaoh. Right? God raised up Moses to get his people out of slavery. Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, "Let my people go." Pharaoh says, "No." God says, "Okay." bugs they get all these bugs right Moses again let my people go Pharaoh no okay frogs and then there's water turns into blood all sorts of horrible stuff Until finally Pharaoh says okay fine get out of here so they all go then Pharaoh changes his mind again Red Sea cross the Red Sea Egypt gets uh, you know the, the water goes over Egypt destroys them Israel's free we all know the story yes This is the story of Israel. So now Israel was not a people. Now they're a people. Then they're enslaved. Then God gets them out of slavery. But now they don't have any place to go, right? So what does God promise them? A land. What's it called? Promised land. It's a real creative name, right? He promised them a land. We call it the promised land. And this land, God was going to give to Israel with a very specific purpose so that they could be an example to all the nations around them on how to have a relationship with God. That was the purpose. Israel was going to be placed in this like, key central part of the world at that time so that all the nations passing through would be able to see this is how to have a relationship with the one true God. There was a problem. There were a lot of people in the promised land, a lot of, a lot of bad guys, the Canaanites, right? And so God says you need to go and take the land and drive out all the Canaanites. You can't be living with the Canaanites. You live with the Canaanites, you're going to start worshiping their gods. You're going to start doing the things that they do. And so you need to drive out all the Canaanites. And so Joshua is the leader that God has called to do this. So in the book of Joshua, we see Israel going into the land, taking the land and being successful at what they're doing. So all this to say God is like with his people all the way up through the book of Joshua and his plan is taking place and things are going really really well. The end of Joshua tells us Joshua 24:31 "'Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua "'and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua "'and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel.'" That's a good thing. Israel served the Lord all throughout the time of Joshua. And that finally brings us to the period of Judges. So this is where we're at. Like If we're just reading this like a novel, when we get to the book of Judges, this is what we're thinking. Israel is in the land. They're in the promised land that God promised, but they haven't had a chance to get rid of all the nations yet that are there they haven't had a chance to drive out all the Canaanites and so the question that we have when we get to the book of judges and Joshua has died the question is going to be is for us is is Israel going to continue to follow Yahweh and be obedient and are they going to be able to drive out all these nations in the promised land so they can fulfill God's command does that make sense that's a whole lot of information to say that's where we stand right now as we come to the book of judges chapter 1 verse 1. Is Israel going to be faithful? That is our question and I've kind of hinted at it but the answer is pretty much going to be a resounding no. All right. Everyone ready to start studying the book of Judges? Here we go. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 1, book of Judges. It says after the death of Joshua the people of Israel inquired of the Lord who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them the Lord said Judah shall go up behold I have given the land into his hand and Judah said to Simeon his brother come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you so Simeon went Simeon went with him Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. All right, so this is, verse 1, I would say the theological high point of the book of Judges. Like things are starting off just where they left off in Joshua. They're going really well. If we think of Judges kind of like a line graph that goes up and down, but trends down and then it goes really far down like that's kind of how you should think of it and this is like the top of the graph right so this is things are going well this is the high point of the book of Judges Joshua dies and the people of Israel know that they need to fight the Canaanites so what do they do they ask the Lord who's going to fight the Canaanites for us this is a good thing It's a good sign that they're seeking the Lord, right? If we're wondering what's going to happen, this is a good sign. All of Israel united comes together and asks the Lord for his help in the task that he's called them to do. So, on its surface, things seem to be heading in a good direction. And yet, there's something missing here. See, after Moses died, it was really clear who was going to be the leader of Israel. It's going to be Joshua. Right? And Joshua dies. And even though Israel sought the Lord for their military success, they don't appoint a new leader. They don't. They just don't do it. They ask the Lord, who's going to help us fight? But they don't do what they did with the transition between Moses and Joshua, and they don't appoint a new leader. This is a red flag for us as readers. It's not like the worst thing in the world, but as readers, we should at least say, huh, that's interesting. Everyone say, huh, that's interesting. Yeah, it is. I'm glad you see that too. No new leader is chosen. So while they're seeking the Lord, we already in the first verse have just somewhat of a red flag. It's interesting. Here's the second thing we see is some success. Israel has some success. We see that in verses 2 to 19. We don't have time to read it, but if you would read through those verses, what you see is the author describing in geographical order different military battles and showing that they're being successful in every single one of them. So if I was like describing a war that took place in Indiana for some reason, and I said, you know, we, we won the Battle of Tipton, then we won the Battle of Atlanta, then we won the Battle of Cicero, then we won the Battle of Noblesville, you would like instinctively as good central Indiana Hoosiers know that like we're moving moving south right but we don't see that when we come to the text but that's exactly what the author is showing he's describing in this geographical order like this precision with how the well, how Israel is being successful in these battles so they're successful in defeating the Canaanites and things seem to be going really well for Israel until we get to verse 19 which is our second red flag so I want you to take a look at it with me verse 19 And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of all the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Everyone say, huh, that's interesting. They couldn't drive out the inhabitants of the plain because their chariots were too strong? Over, you know, the military might of having like, you know, Yahweh on your side? You think they couldn't drive out? Maybe they were just too strong? What do you think is going on here? I think we're starting to see things falling apart for Israel. And that leads us right into the next thing that we're going to see, which is incomplete obedience. Incomplete obedience. Like I said, God had told Israel to completely wipe out the Canaanites. And we shouldn't feel bad about the Canaanites, like God telling them to do that. These were some really bad dudes and dudettes. Like they were like child sacrifices kind of bad. Like these were not people that they could be inhabiting the land with. And so if Israel was going to be fully devoted to the Lord, they needed to drive out the Canaanites completely, but they didn't. And that's what we're, we see in these next verses. Verses 22 to 36, we see seven different instances of different tribes of Israel being successful. Here's where we start to get to the key. They were successful... They won the battle. They appeared to be doing the right thing, but they were not obedient. They were successful, but they were not obedient. we will just show a couple of them, and I just need to tell you on the front end, when we get to some of these crazy names, I'm just making up the pronunciation, so don't think any more highly of me. Uh, I'm just winging it, but here we go. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethsheen or its villages. Didn't drive them out. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites live among them. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Elab or Oczib or Helba or Aphek or Rehob. You get the point here. Time and time again, they failed to do what God was calling them to do. They failed to be obedient. They were, their obedience was incomplete. What's another word for incomplete obedience? Disobedience, yeah. They were being disobedient to the Lord. Their disobedience ultimately led to their downfall down the road. In fact, the Lord, they're failing to drive out the Canaanites. They're failing to follow what God says. And so the Lord actually, in this really interesting passage, immediately calls them out. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. It says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, reminding them of their past, and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done?" So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you, the punishment for failing to obey. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept and they called the name of that place, Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. The last thing we see, maybe, maybe, is repentance. God immediately calls them out for their disobedience, and he tells them they're going to be punished. And what was their response? They wept. But what we don't know is are they weeping because they have consequences for their sin, or are they weeping over their sin? The difference between godly sorrow and worldly grief. Are they truly repentant for their sin? Or are they just weeping because God has called them out for it, and now they're going to suffer consequences? We don't know which one's happening. We'll talk about that more in a second, but that's that's chapter one. That's what we see as we kind of start to enter into the story of the judges. Things look good at first. It looks like they're obeying the Lord. Then we see this incomplete obedience where they're failing to do what God calls them to do. And so God says he's going to punish them. As we look at uh, chapter one of the book of Judges, I think there's two takeaways that we need to have, two things that we need to apply to our lives as we think about this chapter. And the first one is this. Make your obedience true obedience. Make your obedience true obedience. Not halfway obedience, not mostly obedience. Full and true obedience. Now, what Israel was doing here is kind of interesting because the Canaanites that they defeated didn't pose any sort of military threat to them. Like, it wasn't a military threat to keep them hanging around. And so they thought they knew better than God. And so instead of driving them out like God said, they actually decided that they were going to put them to forced labor. You can almost hear them kind of saying, like, look, God, you want us to drive them out, but look, we're actually using them for our advantage. Like, isn't that smart of us, God? How easy is it to negotiate away from full obedience with God? God calls us to do things sometimes that don't always like, make sense immediately to our sight. Like, It doesn't know exactly why he would call us to this. And how easy is it to negotiate down with God? God, this makes so much more sense. So much better. God, this is better for you. We're not called to half-hearted obedience, half-hearted discipleship. We're called to full obedience, which is really hard, (laughs) okay? And that's why in some way, as much as we're going to look at Israel and say, how could you, why do you keep doing that? Like, man, is that same tendency not true in our own hearts, in our own lives? Like when God calls us to follow him in a way that's going to have, like, consequences for us, how easy is it to just stay away and say, I'm going to follow you most of the way, God. But I'm not going to follow you all the way. May we be a people who are characterized by true obedience, by full obedience, fully and completely seeking the Lord. That's our first takeaway. And then here's the second one. Make your repentance true repentance. Make your repentance true Repentance. There's a difference between being sad about the consequences of your sin and grieving over your sin because it's sin. Israel wept when they found out God was going to punish them. But we'll, we'll see later on as it wasn't a true repentance because they didn't change course. After a while, they just kept right going into those same old patterns of sin. So church, let me just say... By way of warning and out of love. Like when you repent of your sin, make it a true repentance. And the only way really that we can know this is over time. When when we sin and we have consequences for it, man, it's so easy to hate the sin in that time, right? When you're feeling the consequences of it. God, I hate this. I want this out of my life. But when the consequences go away, does your mind stay the same? the difference between godly sorrow and worldly grief we need to hate sin we need to say along with the apostle paul wretched man that i am in in romans 7 who will deliver me from this body of death we need to say about our own sin god why do i keep doing that right that's the place we need to get to hating our sin is half of the story And then knowing that God's the only one who can fix it is the other half. That's the gospel. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, Knowing I fall so short of the man I need to be, of the woman I need to be. I fall so short of who God's calling me to be. And I hate that. And I need a Savior to save me. From that because it can't come from here it can't come from myself it has to come from God and so the best thing that we can do as followers of Jesus now when we sin is just to ask the Lord to give us the same mind about our sin that he has about our sin because we can't manufacture this on our own it has to come from the Spirit pray God I hate my sin but make me hate it even more And the more we hate our sin, the more we're thankful for our Savior. The more we're willing to follow him fully and completely. You see, this is the cycle of discipleship. We see the cycle of rebellion in Israel, but this is the cycle of discipleship. We repent of our sin. We hate our sin. We need the Savior And when we do that more and more, we fall deeper in love with our God and we're willing to follow him wherever he calls us to do whatever he calls us to do. This is the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Seniors, this is the life that God's calling you to live. You wonder at this point in your life, what is my life going to look like next? And I don't know, but I do know that this is the kind of life that God is calling you to. To live, to pursue Him all the way. All the way, 100% with everything, who you are, with everything you are. And When you sin, you confess your sin, you repent of your sin, and you ask the Lord to make you feel the same way that He feels about your sin. And then that's when the grace of God fills your life, a grace that is inexhaustible. We can never run out and praise the Lord for that. I am so glad that we serve that kind of God kind of God who loves us, who's gracious, who promises to forgive all our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise the Lord that he is that kind of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Our sins are many, but your mercy is more. We thank you for that, God. Thank you for the gospel. God, as we see this example that you have in your word of Israel, what a picture. And you showing your faithfulness to Israel time and time again, what a picture of the way that you show your faithfulness to us, to your people now, the church. We thank you, God. We thank you that in Christ, we are your people now. Because of Christ, we are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We praise you for that, God. We thank you. Help us to be a people whose obedience is true obedience, whose repentance is true repentance, God. And may we be disciples who follow you to the ends of the earth. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.